The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This evening we'll be focusing our attention in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, near the end there, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. And the title of our Good Friday sermon is The Suffering of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians and he's encouraging them to persevere even in suffering when their suffering is unjust or undeserved and they're suffering righteously. But to make his case as strong as it can possibly be, Peter turns to the example historically of Jesus Christ. Peter was there with Jesus, but interestingly, in verses 21 through 25, Peter mainly quotes the verses that were read for us earlier from Isaiah, the end of 52 into 53. This is perhaps the most well-known Old Testament passage that prophesies the suffering servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then it was fulfilled by him. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, explains why that matters for you and I. But particularly, Peter wants to help us see what Jesus has done is unique to Jesus. Because frankly, we are not what Jesus alone is. So tonight we'll look at five Unique aspects of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Five, if you have a bulletin, you can follow along with them. Five unique aspects of the suffering of Jesus Christ. So we're in 1 Peter 2, look in God's Word in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Notice, suffered for you. That's why we're looking at five aspects of His suffering. Christ suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, number one, here's the first way that Jesus' suffering is unique. It's unique to him. But number one, Jesus suffered though truly innocent. Look in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Right away, we're shown that Jesus is categorically other. He is not actually like us. He's not comparable to us. He alone suffers, though completely sinless. Because the text uses the word sin, and it's a key word for a night like tonight, let me pause and make sure I try to define it for us so that we understand what sin is. Sin is not a lapse in arbitrary social conventions. Sin is not a mistake or an accident. Sin is not a failure to live up to some man-made conventional standards. Sin is always godless self-centeredness. Sin's essence is always hostility against God himself. And sin, we might summarize it this way, is man in revolt. Because we tend to use the term to describe simply a horizontal plane with other relationships. Or sometimes we use the term strictly based on what's currently legal or illegal. We have badly lost that sin is ultimately always against God himself. 
John Piper helps us when he defines sin this way. It's a lengthy definition, but I think very instructive. Sin is the glory of God not honored. Sin is the holiness of God not reverenced. Sin is the greatness of God not admired. Sin is the power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not Treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. The first shock we have in 1 Peter 2 is that Jesus suffered though He alone did so sinlessly. You and I are all sinners. In fact, even Jesus' enemies confirmed that they could find no fault in Him. On the night of Good Friday, in Matthew 26, we read that Jesus' enemies, the chief priests, the Sadducees, we read in Matthew 26.59, were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. They couldn't find anyone to confirm that Jesus had done wrong and they had an invested interest to murder him. Later, Jesus is brought before Pilate. Pilate says in Luke 23, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by Jesus. A third time after they continued to yell, crucify him, Pilate said this, why, what evil has he done? Isn't it interesting that even Jesus' enemies could find no fault in him? So the first thing that makes Jesus unique in his suffering is that Jesus alone is truly innocent. We are guilty. We stand Condemned. We deserve consequences. Jesus, the Son of God, came into humanity and remained completely innocent. Now, number two, Jesus alone refused to retaliate. Look in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. One translation puts it this way. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. Good Friday, in our reckoning of time, begins after midnight. And the first event of Good Friday actually is the betrayal by Judas. This would have happened probably around 1 or 2 in the morning by our reckoning of that Friday. From that, Jesus is brought to an informal hearing before Annas, Caiaphas's former high priest, Caiaphas's father-in-law and former high priest. At that mock trial, Jesus is blindfolded and slapped. That same evening on Good Friday, Peter denies Jesus thrice. After sunrise on Friday, the Sanhedrin condemns Jesus to death. Pilate and Herod take turns shipping him back and forth, mocking him. Jesus is then marched to Golgotha. He's crucified between two thieves. He's crowned with thorns. A robe is put on his bloody back. And his clothing that he came with is then gambled away. Everything about the evening is meant to make a mockery of Him. Do you know, though, that if we were to make a mockery 
of something or someone, it wouldn't even come close to the mockery of someone of the worth that Jesus has. Because of his infinite worthiness of worship, the rock should cry out. Him being mocked is beyond our fathoming how evil it is. Think of it this way. If you lose a penny, you might be mildly disappointed. If you lose your car keys, you'd be more concerned. If you somehow tragically lose your uninsured house, you'd be devastated. If you lose all your savings in a stock market crash, you would be crestfallen. Why has your concern grown? Because the value has increased. Jesus being mocked is mocking the most infinitely beautiful, holy, worthy person ever. And yet, what did he say when he was mocked? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus alone responds in a way that is unlike us. Number two, he refused to retaliate. Now, number three, Jesus uniquely, in a way none of us ever have, trusted God's justice. Look now in verse 23 as we continue it out. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We rightly sing. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have snapped his fingers and destroyed all his enemies. But not only did Jesus not physically bring down condemnation, Jesus did not even breathe out words of condemnation, but instead trusted the person who would judge all the earth. He trusted God to judge justly. Later, God gave that position to Jesus. But on the cross, Jesus submitted to the Father's full and final justice. One of the last things Jesus prayed, in fact, the final thing Jesus prayed before he died is recorded in Luke 23. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, trusting his life and death to the Father who alone judges justly. We, if we're honest, when those people sin against us, we want to record every injustice we've experienced and perhaps even take control to balance the scales ourselves. Instead, Jesus trusted God's justice. Jesus trusted God's justice, we should note, because God the Father, Son, and Spirit were in harmony in a holy, loving, just plan to save Romans 3 tells us something remarkable, that we are unrighteous, and yet God brought forth someone righteous so that He could impute His righteousness to us and so that He would bear our unrighteousness in His body. And that way, God could be just, Romans 3.26 says. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish. Notice God the Father, God the Son, in agreement in a holy and just plan to save. And so I love the way Octavius Winslow put it when he wrote, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. On the cross, then, we see that Jesus is trusting God's just plan to save the unjust. Number four is verse 24. And this one I think is the most important, so we'll pause here. 
Number four, this is totally unique to Jesus. We we do not do this when we suffer. Only Jesus did this when He suffered. Jesus suffered as an atoning substitute. The perfect for the imperfect. The just for the unjust. The innocent for the guilty. Look in verse 24. This is amazing. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree referring to the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then you may remember this phrase from Isaiah. By His wounds you have been healed. I want to draw out several things from this very important verse. It says He bore our sins. Let me draw out four things even from just that phrase. First, let me draw out that Christ died for us, for our good. The Bible says that God was concerned about our well-being, our eternal security, our ultimate profit, which is staggering. Jesus' death was necessary and it was voluntary, but don't ever forget it was done in love for you. As Jesus broke bread, do you remember what He said? This is My body given for you. Remember, as the apostles put it, Christ died for us, not because of our merit. Romans 5.8 puts it memorably. God commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. It's encouraging to know that God set His love on us when we had nothing worthy about us. That's why we know it is secure. God has done good for the undeserved. But don't miss also the next phrase. Christ died for our sins. We must be clear, though our culture is very unclear, that the most important need we have is to be reconciled to God. And the most important problem we have is sin. Sin has separated us from God. The obstacle that keeps us from our Creator is our sin. Our sin must be dealt with definitely, permanently, satisfyingly, or we are eternally sunk. Despite innumerable pursuits, we have endeavored to try to fix ourselves. There is no hope in anything we could do. But praise God, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Third, Christ died our death. Meaning the death we deserve. When Jesus died for our sins, He died the death we should die. Jesus endured as an innocent person the penalty for guilty persons. Perhaps you know Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Whatever the wage was is what Jesus came to pay, and the wage is death. We forget this, I think, because we think of death as natural. We assume we'll see it and experience it. We must remember that when God created the world, Death was not part of the design. No one was expected to die. No one anticipated death. Death is not part of God's design. Death is the consequence of sin's entrance. Because sin has come into the world, death reigns. Death is actually divine judgment. Do you know what that means? Jesus didn't have to die because He never sinned. There was no reason he needed to experience death. There's no condemnation that should have fallen on him because he never did anything wrong. This is why Jesus says in John 10, 
I lay down my life by my own authority. No one takes it from me. I choose to lay it down and I will raise it up again. Jesus dying was something that he chose to do in our place, not something that he should have borne. This brings a fourth comment, still under number four, but under this incredible verse. Jesus died so that he could bring sinners to God. See, the word death in the Bible means to separate. We kind of understand this because in our wedding vows we say, till death do us part. So we still have the concept of death separating people. In the Bible, death signifies that we're separate from our Creator, separate from His purposes. Romans 5.12 says, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, death came through sin, and death spread to all men because all have sinned. Do you know in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God said this to Adam before he was expelled from the garden. He said, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I'm a pastor, and so I'm around funerals very often. Often I'll preach them or I'll attend them. And I've noticed that many of our funerals will have printed on the bulletin something like, uh, for you are dust, and from dust you shall return. And these are printed as if they're a warm sentiment. In Genesis 3, they're given as divine justice. The reason God says that phrase is because, how sad is it? I built you out of dust, and now you have to go back to it. That wasn't the plan. Death exists because sin has entered the world. And death has separated us from God, just like we were cast out of the garden. So what hope do we have? Praise God for 1 Peter 3.18, if you flip just a page. Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Through His death, He brings us to God. I fear that we don't appreciate how amazing it is for sinners to be brought close to a holy God. This week I read John Stott's very excellent book, The Cross of Christ. In it, Stott pointed out five repeated descriptions of how unapproachable God is. Can I give them to you quickly? First, the Bible describes God unapproachably through height. In the Bible, He's called the most high God. He is above and beyond. In fact, infinitely transcendent from the curse that pervades the cosmos. In the Bible, God is described as distance. Do you remember what God told Moses through the burning bush? Do not come any closer. In fact, in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle in the temple, there's a thick curtain that no one can enter except the high priest once a year because you cannot draw close to God. Some Bible readers get very disturbed when they read that Uzzah was killed for touching the ark. But God said in Joshua 3 verse 40, keep a distance of a thousand yards between you and the ark because you cannot approach me. You're sinful and I'm holy. In fact, the words that hauntingly will stick in the ears of those who reject Jesus is when Jesus says to them, depart from me. So height and distance. But third, in the Bible, God is described as unapproachable light. Have you ever stepped from a dark room into a blazing sun? And you cover your eyes and you're almost ready to recoil. The Bible actually says that God dwells in unapproachable light. 
The fourth way that God is described in the Old Testament, not just height, distance, and light, but number four, fire. If you've ever been at a big bonfire and it's so hot that you move your chair back, the Bible describes God as a consuming fire, blazing that cannot be approached without caution. Hebrews 10 says this, a fury of fire will consume adversaries. Verse 31 punctuates, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fifth way God describes how unapproachable He is as holy and us as unholy is perhaps the most, the most graphic and it is vomit. That might be the body's most violent reaction, but the Bible actually uses it to describe God's distaste with sinners in the land of Canaan. God says that He will vomit out its inhabitants. Jesus says of the Laodicean church in Revelation 2 and 3 that they will be spewed out of his mouth because they have not actually approached him rightly. Do you know why we need to hear these five things tonight? Because in America, we've made our own God. And our God is easygoing. He's tolerant of our minor mistakes and accidental offenses. In fact, recently in America, not only have we made a God who is easygoing, we've actually made a God who celebrates what the true God says He condemns. We've made a God who applauds us, everything we do. And so we're not moved when we read in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ would have to die to bring us to God. Listen, there is no way we can approach God other than the blood of Jesus. We have no entrance based on our own merit. These verses should move us because we don't understand how sinful we are. Our handmade God in this country is not the living and true God of the Bible. One author put it this way, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe sin provokes the wrath of God. Another author wrote it this way, where the idea of the wrath of God is ignored there will also be no understanding of the gospel. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. So look in 1 Peter 2 again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. God can only save us through someone perfect. Jesus alone is that suffering servant. Do you understand that we cannot save ourselves? We cannot take our own place. This was illustrated powerfully to me in my own family last month. We've been trying to teach our children the gospel, and as an illustration, we've tried to point out that if they do something sinful, they need someone else to take their place. Last month, my boys were misbehaving. Try to use your imagination. (laughs) And I asked the two of them to go upstairs and wait for Dad before... I came up, and when I came upstairs, they did something that really did melt my heart. My older boy looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, Dad, don't discipline him. Let me take his place. It was moving. But then I had to look at him and say, but I sent both of you up here (laughs) because you're both guilty. See, no one could save us except someone perfectly innocent Jesus is that perfect person. When we talk about the cross, two planes need to converge in our head. 
I caused Jesus' death. My sins pushed him there. But the other plane needs to be God ordained Jesus' death. His love for us sent him there. This brings us to the fifth and perhaps most beautiful, unique thing about Jesus in verse 25. You were strain like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What's unique to Jesus is that He is the shepherd even of strange sheep. Of course, you recognize Isaiah 53.6 here. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to His own way. But notice the Good Shepherd has died for the undeserving sheep so that He could be the overseer of our soul. What a beautiful image that is. That there's a shepherd who will get our soul all the way to the greenest pasture. So here's three takeaways for you tonight. Number one, our sin is more horrible than we think. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. If the perfect Son of God needed to be nailed, surely we must have a better impression of our own worthiness of punishment. Sometimes people say, well, why couldn't God just snap His fingers and wave His hand and just say, hey, everybody's forgiven. There is no debt. That question could be given many answers, but let me just give one this evening. Honestly, the question is not, why couldn't God just wave His hands? The question is, how could God forgive anyone? And the answer is only found in the amazing truth of the Gospel that someone perfectly innocent who could only be God Himself, would come to take the place of the guilty. So number one, our sin is more horrible than we think. Number two, God's love is more wonderful than we fathom. God's love is more wonderful than we fathom. It is amazing grace. It is astounding love that God would forgive us and that He would create a plan so that we would not be left condemned, which would have been just. But His love was satisfied on the cross as well as His justice. And number three, salvation can only be received through faith as a free gift. See, the cross makes clear that what needed to be done so that sinners could be saved was accomplished solely by Jesus Nothing positive, nothing meritorious, nothing favorable will be contributed or supplemented by any of us in any way. It is totally paid by Jesus. Before He dies, He says, it is finished. There's nothing we contribute. Now that free gift is the most powerful incentive to live a holy life of love and obedience. But a life of love and obedience is not meritorious. It doesn't contribute to your entrance to glory. It is Jesus and Him alone who bled and rose. That free gift seems so hard for so many to comprehend. But this evening I encourage you, do not stumble over the cross. Kneel at it. And while you're there, admit your sin, but look to Jesus and rejoice in forgiveness received through faith. Let's pray this evening. 
Father, increase our view of Your holiness. Increase our view of our sinfulness. And increase our joy in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And may everything this evening echo the hallelujah that He and He alone deserves. In His name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.